If you'd like to turn to your Pew Bibles, uh, page uh, 1039, and our dear sister Jeannie is going to read our scripture for us this morning before we, before we begin. And please turn your cell phone off. Now a great crowd accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own mother, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king's war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, before I start this morning, I'd just like to extend a thank you again to the elders and Pastor Brown, who is ironically at the Brown Church this morning, uh, there with Jake Clement. I'm happy that he could make it there. And, and as I was preparing this week, I, I found my mind constantly drifting to you all. Um, it was kind of touching, actually. I, I, the, I was struck by how deep my feelings of love for all of you have become in a very brief time that we, we, Amy and I and my family have been able to be members of this church. And so that just makes this opportunity to, to share God's word that much more meaningful to me. And I just wanted to say that John Calvin says we should keep a short account of all our relationships. So I just shortened up our account there. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, I am aware that unless your spirit opens our ears and our hearts and our minds to your word, they are just meaningless iterations on a page. Father, we are dependent on your spirit for all things. I thank you that you are present here today, and I pray that your spirit would guide us 
that you would guide my words and use them to bring glory to your name, Lord, I pray. Amen. So it was, the year was 1986, and it was in a dorm room at Gordon College. My best friend Eric and I were, were sitting around having a conversation. And uh, like so many young college students, we were idealistic, we were eager, hopeless romantics. Um, we were very zealous for our faith, though, too. And we were trying to answer this question on this day. What does radical Christianity look like? Does being a Christ follower require you to be constantly living on the edge, to be at all times spending oneself on the work of the kingdom? Or should we leave family, friends, country, move to the slums of Calcutta and work with the poor like Mother Teresa? Does it require that we sell everything and take a vow of poverty, which we realized wouldn't have taken much effort since we were college students. But ironically, after further thought and discussion and batting this around, my friend pointed out that we were tacking the term radical onto the word Christian. Does the word Christian need such a qualifier, he asked. In much of the world today, you would never have to qualify the term Christian. To be a Christ follower, to be a disciple of Jesus, is a radical, if not dangerous, thing to be. For the first and second century Christian, to be a follower of Christ was a radical, if not demanding, proposition. In his book, Word, Water, Wine, and Bread, quite a lengthy title, William Willimans describes the process of being admitted into the Christian community. Now, it's been an emphasis of our church for the last few years, if you've been paying attention, to make membership process, the membership process, a more meaningful and serious endeavor. Well, listen to the second century church who put a whole new spin on meaningful membership. First, there was a rigorous examination of all who sought admission. A variety of occupations and associations disqualified you from admission. Rather than opening her doors to all comers, the church carefully attempted to differentiate herself from what she considered to be an alien and hostile pagan world. Willemans continues, If you were fortunate enough to pass this first test and be admitted as a hearer, a three-year period of instruction followed. Old Testament readings and worship. Hearers could attend the first part of Sunday worship, the service of the word, but they were dismissed before the Lord's Supper. Talk about fencing the table. Finally, after three years, those who had proved themselves by their knowledge of the faith and by their virtuous lives were admitted as candidates. Having been set apart for baptism, their lives were examined again. Have they lived honestly during the time they were hearers? Have they honored the widows, visited the sick, done all sorts of good things? If those who sponsor them testify that they have done these things, then they could hear the gospel. I don't see Polly here today, but you 
thought our membership process was difficult, but that was quite the thing. Now, this, this might sound extreme to our 21st century years, maybe even unbiblical in its exclusion of certain people. But though these early Christians might be guilty of overemphasizing the cost, consider that we might be equally guilty of underemphasizing what being a disciple of Jesus requires. Now, personally, I find today's passage difficult and challenging because Jesus is telling us that discipleship is a whole life commitment. So if you want to turn to your scriptures, we're going to just walk through the text together. In chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, we find Jesus turning to the crowd and saying to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The first characteristic, the first requirement of discipleship is your whole heart. And at first look of this statement of Jesus, it comes across Harsh, almost cruel. Hate my father, my mother, my wife, my children. Is Jesus using hyperbole here? And what do we do with this word hate? Most commentators agree that the verb hate does not imply a psychological hatred. Jesus is rather employing a literary technique commonly used in the Hebrew language. And what he is saying is that not so much this as this. An example of this is when the scripture says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The implication is that mercy is greater than sacrifice. And Jesus is saying to us, using very forceful language, is that there is something greater than earthly blood relations. And that something is following me, being my disciple. Put another way, your devotion and love for me should be so great that it might look like hatred in comparison to your earthly relations. In first century Judaism, the disciple-rabbi relationship was well known. It was a prestigious and difficult position to achieve, akin to a Harvard doctorate program. It required a total commitment. Doug Greenwald writes about this rabbi-disciple relationship. If a rabbi agreed to be a would-be disciple's request and allowed him to become a disciple, the disciple-to-be agreed to total commitment submission to the rabbi's authority in all areas of interpreting the scriptures. This was a cultural given to all observant Jewish young men, something each truly wanted. Each disciple came to the rabbinic relationship with a desire and a willingness to do just that. Surrender to the authority of God's word as interpreted by his rabbi. Also, the student would commit himself to living in close proximity with the rabbi and his fellow disciples. His whole life 
would be on full display. Furthermore, a disciple would desire to emulate his rabbi, think like him, speak like him, and most importantly, behave like him as righteous living and behavior were the end goal of the discipleship process. Jesus says, if you are to be my disciple, it will require your whole heart. Jesus continues in verse 27 to make another demanding statement. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Many have said that this verse is an merely an exhortation to patient endurance through life's trials and disappointments. But many others have said that this seems a trivial and wrong interpretation. Rather, at that time, crucifixion was a common sight. During a rebellion in Galilee in 6 AD, hundreds were crucified. Just imagine being a citizen of Jerusalem and seeing the image of dozens of crosses silhouetted on the hillside and condemned men carrying them up the hill. An original hearer of this phrase would immediately think of a condemned man going to die. We find Jesus using the same language earlier in in chapter 9, verse 23, where he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? We live in a culture that is obsessed with finding yourself. How often have you heard the phrase, they just haven't found themselves yet? Or how many parents have said, that poor boy, poor boy of mine, he just needs to find himself. Jesus says to us, you'll never find yourself by trying to find yourself. The only way to find yourself is to lose yourself for me. You need to spiritually die to yourself and put on me to live This time of year is an anniversary for me. This year is my 37th. It was 37 years ago that the Spirit used these very words of Christ and moved my heart. I realized that if I continued doing it my way, following my desires, the end end result would be death. That if I wanted to live, I would need to die to myself And to make Jesus my life. Uh, This might sound really silly, but I was reading a devotional for teens and the author encouraged the reader to give everything to Christ. She even went so far as to encourage giving Jesus your school supplies, your pencils, your notebooks. Yet I remember kneeling in childlike faith beside my bed. And offering all of my worldly possessions to Christ. I gave him my books, my pencils, 
I gave him my beloved Wilson Indestructible, Indestructo basketball. I gave him everything. I was learning to die to myself and to follow Christ. In his gospel, Luke puts a great amount of emphasis on following. This is one of the primary demands of the Christian life. Following Jesus is not merely an intellectual ascent, but is an inward transformation brought forth by the Spirit through faith. Jesus is saying that a confession to belief is not enough. True faith carries an active, obedient following. If one does not bear his cross and follow me, this one cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus is serious and it requires your whole heart. Second, not only does discipleship require your whole heart, but it requires your whole mind. In verses 28 through 32, we have two parables. And both of these parables are short and they make a single point of comparison. Jesus simply asks, who among you wanting to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? The question is rhetorical. Jesus' hearers would reply without hesitation, no one. Of course you sit down and count the cost. The person who doesn't consider, well, he'll be mocked. He's a fool. The second parable is also rhetorical. No king goes to attack another without first deliberating. And then Jesus makes this clear, emphatic statement. This one cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus, throughout the gospel, speaks often of material wealth and possessions. In fact, the Gospel of Luke has more to say about wealth than any other gospel. Our use of wealth reveals our hearts more than anything else. And what Christ is saying here and throughout the gospel is that we must be freed spiritually, emotionally, and perhaps literally from our possessions. You must be willing to give up anything that hinders following Christ. Discipleship requires your whole heart. It requires your whole mind. And it requires all that you have. <clears throat> In his final words to the crowd, Jesus speaks about savorless salt. How exactly does salt lose its, fa- its taste? Believe me, many propositions have been made as to exactly how salt loses its saltiness. But what is important is that Jesus is posing another rhetorical question. If salt loses its flavor, how can it be any good? Savorless salt is of absolutely no use. I know that we have many gardeners in our congregation. And if you are like Amy and me, you love your compost pile. That beautiful deteriorating pile of plant and animal waste that eventually turn into rich topsoil. Many deteriorated, corrupt things are useful to mix with your compost. But Jesus says, savorless salt isn't even useful 
as manure. Disciples who don't follow Jesus are absolutely worthless. In fact, they are not my disciples. Jesus concludes his teaching saying, let the one who has ears hear. Listening in the gospel of Luke is very important. And throughout the last 10 chapters of Luke, just as Jesus has resolutely set for Jerusalem, he becomes the patient teacher. And he's trying to tell us something, something that is a matter of life and death. The first century disciple was expected to listen to his rabbi, to wrestle daily in community with the word of God. Jesus is calling us to wrestle with him, with his words. Like Jacob wrestling with the gospel, it takes effort. A disciple of Jesus must follow him in complete obedience, above family pull. It involves all thinking, all effort, all wholehearted energy. Yes, even one's very life. Otherwise, like saltless salt, this one is utterly worthless. I said in the beginning, this is a difficult passage. And if any, if you're anything like me, right now you feel a burden, <laughs> maybe a little crushed. This description of discipleship doesn't sound anything like me. My whole heart, my whole mind, all that I have. Can anyone live up to this? I feel like. The standards that Jesus has set are just too high. How do I even know I'm a disciple? Or, if you know you are not a disciple, how do you become one? The danger of this passage for me is that my heart is to turn this into a checklist of behaviors. Like a New Year's resolution. Our heart's default mode is religion. Here's the bad news. And as my brother Wolfork said to me this week, the good news. There are no perfect disciples. But there is a perfect rabbi. And if this teaching, if this was just a teaching. And Jesus were just any other teacher. Then it would be really bad news. But Jesus is more than a teacher. He's a savior. Other religions say, here's our way of discipleship. Do this and you'll be accepted. Yet Jesus says, I am the way. Other religions say, these are the steps that you must take to be righteous. And Jesus says, I am your righteousness. Other religions say you must do X, Y, and Z. And Jesus says, I've done it for you. I've been to Jerusalem. I've borne the cross. I've paid the price. Jesus gave up his family to give us a new spiritual family. 
Ultimately, what the gospel tells us is that we don't need a new list of behaviors to perform. We need a new heart. Not just new priorities, but new identity. Following is simply an expression of our new identity that comes out of our new heart. And that is what the Spirit gives us when we surrender to Jesus by faith. The normal line of thought kind of goes like this often in our churches, is that the way to get into the kingdom is through the gospel. But then you have to devote yourself with all your might to the principles of the kingdom. Yet, it is the gospel that not only saves you, but it also advances you. The gospel is the beginning, the middle, and the end. What do I mean? A couple examples. Last week during Sunday school, if you were there, Johnny and Allison Fritter shared the testimony of their good friend and translator in Thailand, Mu A Ku. I love saying that name, Mu A Ku. And after hearing about the joy, uh, Johnny was teaching on the joy that Christians possess. And after hearing Johnny's teaching about this joy that Jesus gives his followers, Mueku fell, fell under the Spirit's conviction. She returned quietly to her room where she wrestled with God in prayer. Now, by all accounts, Mueku is a loving, ministering, and serious follower of Jesus. She possesses all the external markings of a disciple. But in, inwardly, she felt something missing. And it was while she was wrestling with the Lord that Mueku found joy. She, she found joy not in more religious activity. She found joy through surrender. This is the way of the disciple. Charles Wesley had a similar experience. Like Mueku, Wesley was very devout. The son of a pastor, he devoted himself to holy living and to constant religious activity. He even went so far as to go to the colonies to do missions work among the Native Americans. Back in England with his brother, he formed a holiness society where they would meet regularly for Bible study and prayer. They were labeled the Methodists because of their methods that they used. But despite all their religious efforts, something was missing, and it tormented Charles. Days before his conversion, Charles Wesley wrote in his journal, Today I received the the sacrament, but not Christ. It wasn't until a friend who came excitedly running into his room, shared with him from Luther's commentary on on Romans that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness that Charles Wesley had been seeking could not be attained through religious activity, but only by resting in the finished work of Christ. That night, Charles Wesley wrote in his journal, I went to bed confident 
in Christ. So what was Charles Wesley's response to God's grace? It was a passionate and zealous love for the gospel. Given a cold shoulder by the established church, he began to preach on the streets, in the lanes, to anyone who would listen, bringing about a spiritual awakening in England. He began to live like a disciple. At the end of the service today, we will be singing the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote moments after his conversion. And I want you to listen to some of the words before we sing it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, did die for me? Is Christ the passion of your heart? Have the chains of your sin fallen off? Is the gospel what you glory in? Does it make your heart sing? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ? Our source of joy and the power for change is the gospel. The gospel is what brings about heart transformation, which manifests itself in a transformed life. And when Christ means that much to us because of what he has done for us is when we begin to live like a disciple. May God grant us ears to hear.